As some of you may already know, Iceland is one of my favorite places in the whole world. And when I'm here, I spend a lot of time outside going on long walks along the seaside in Reykjavik and hiking through the fjords. My packing list was not complete without a box or three of Element, my new favorite electrolyte drink mix. I need to make sure I'm staying properly hydrated while abroad. And each packet contains the perfect ratio of sodium, potassium, and magnesium. I've been loving their new chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry flavors, which are meant to be enjoyed hot. They are perfect for my post-walk coffee on a cold morning. And did I mention that Element is offering a free sample pack with any purchase? That's eight single-serving packets, a great way to find your favorite flavor. Get yours at drinkelement.com forward slash girlboss. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com forward slash girlboss. Hello and welcome back. I am so excited to introduce this conversation today with Victoria and Liz. I cried after this recording. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh no. <laughs> to Victoria afterwards because I was just so happy to have had the conversation. Aww. Yeah, like Victoria, you remember me crying. That happened, right? Or am I having like, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, I cried. No, no, you did. It was like reflective tears. Well, I remember like one of the first guests, like once we first started working together in season one, she was like your dream guest. And I was so ecstatic when she replied to me over email. I was like, Avery's gonna freak. So I'm just so happy that it finally happened. She's as iconic as you said she would be. Well, that's the thing. I've had the opportunity to be proven wrong on numerous occasions with people that I've met through this podcast that I've had conversations with that I had strong opinions about before. And Soraya is one of those people that I hold on, like it's on the other side of the spectrum where I have all these strong opinions about her. I love her. And just to give some context, I have read her book over probably 20 times at this point. It's called Rage Becomes Her. It is for me like the Bible. I went to the women's strike in Iceland. I brought the book with me. I was like marching with it. Like I am a huge Soraya fan. So she's one of those people that when, you know, when they say you should never meet your heroes, she's a hero that I met that I was like, I'm so happy I met her because she absolutely is everything that I expected she would be and more. That's awesome. That doesn't happen that often either. Mm -hmm. So that's a testament to her and her book. And we're talking all about big feelings and anger and rage and why it's an important emotion, even though I think a lot of us try to hide it or suppress it or pretend that it doesn't exist, especially in the context of work. No one wants to be that person that sends an angry email or has a heated conversation in a boardroom or whatever cliche scenario you might be picturing. Yeah, it's a big one. I don't know any woman that's never been angry in her life, but in the book, she has a quote. She says, a society that does not respect women's anger is one that does not respect women, not as human beings, thinkers, knowers, active participants, or citizens. And she talks a lot about how anger is a representation of hope and a representation of commitment. When we're angry, it means that we believe that things perhaps could be better and that there's an opportunity for better. And yeah, I think that we've all had our experiences. Victoria, Like, I'd love to know if you've ever been angry at work or if you've ever experienced specific anger that's really shifted a perspective for you. 100%. I mean, when people first meet me, they're like, oh, she's like basically golden retriever energy. Like I'm always smiling. I'm always so happy. And they're like, oh my gosh, do you ever get angry? Did you ever yell at somebody? Do you ever like cry? And yeah, honestly, I feel like anger is one of those emotions that I will actively fight so hard to not feel or not identify with, especially as women. There is such a negative 
connotation. You're crazy or you're off the handle or you're too emotional, which I know we've heard so much. In the context of work, I don't have a specific story that jumps out, but in a relationship, I do. And hopefully that's okay that I I share because it was the first time that I genuinely acted on my anger. And it surprised me in the sense of I was in like an unhealthy relationship and it had gotten to the point where I feel like I took so much and then I eventually just snapped and I had slammed doors and I had said, fuck you. And I was swearing and yelling. And I was like, who is this person? I don't know who she is. And it scared the living shit out of me because I feel like I'm very open about my anxiety, talking about that, mental health every other emotion, but anger is something that in my mind, I was like, oh my gosh, that is so negative. That makes me a bad person. And my therapist was like, it's just a feeling. It's just an emotion. Like It's just your body telling you that you've had enough, even though mentally you're like maybe not wanting to act on it. And so I'm really trying to get comfortable with that anger because it really did scare me, especially because my previous partner had said for your next relationship, you really should work on your anger. It's not something that is healthy or like beneficial and you should really work on that. And I refused to identify with being an angry person. And funny enough, I haven't felt that way since I've been out of the relationship. So I'm like, okay, maybe it is situational, but I don't know. It was kind of iconic not being in control. I'm always in control in like so many aspects of my life. And the first time that I really acted on my emotion. So I'm trying to be like, okay, maybe that was just my inner self protecting me, which is kind of cool. Because the truth is that anger isn't what gets in our way. It is our way. All we have to do is own it. So when I observe what's been going on for millennia for women. Anger has been a tool that has helped us to get rights to our own bodies, to our financial and economic access, to own homes, to have credit cards, to vote. Anger was our way there. And I'm not saying that anger is a tool that women can use to garner that. I think it's actually quite the opposite because of all the bias that exists, but it is something that men have effectively used to be respected and to be feared in a way. I can't tell you how many times I've worked in workplaces and offices where man's temper tantrum has completely shifted a culture within an organization. I've seen men slam doors. I've seen them push tables. I've seen them harass and bully and assault other people. Yeah. The amount of times I overhear my dad yelling on a conference call is far too many. And I just don't have that luxury. No, absolutely not. And I think that before we get into the intro, I want to share one more quote from this book, because if you're listening to this podcast, please read this book. It is the best book I've ever read. It is the reason why I actually tapped into my own personal anger and I got broken up with. My ex dumped me high and dry, left me, (laughs) but I don't feel bad about it because I spoke up for myself. He was speaking to me in a way that he was all too comfortable speaking to me in. And I said, listen, I'm not going to tolerate that. You cannot speak to me that way. And I called him a name back for the first time ever. I said, you are a coward. And he decided to pack up all this stuff. He left. I thought we were going to see each other again and I never saw him again. So he ghosted after four years, but it's wild how I tapped into my anger that one time. And what I was met with was absolute abandonment. That's what I was met with. But in the book, she says, anger is a forward-looking emotion rooted in the idea that there should be change. Resentment, on the other hand, is locked in the past and usually generates no meaningful difference in the situation. So I tapped into anger in that moment. I think my ex tapped into resentment. (laughs) 
Nevertheless, here we are. Soraya, thank you so much for joining us here at Girl Boss Radio. Before we started this conversation, I have referred to your book as my version of the Bible. A lot of times I've recommended to hundreds of people, gifted it to loads of people. So this is like a huge milestone for me. So yeah, thank you so much for spending the time. Thank you. My goodness. It's a wonderful way to start the day. So for me, your book made me really angry. And I've shared this with a lot of folks that I recommended it to. And specifically what I've said is, the book will make you angry, but it will make you feel a lot less alone. How did you expect readers to feel while reading Rage Becomes Her? I deliberately wrote it, actually, so that people wouldn't feel alone. As a girl growing up, as a young woman, as an older woman, I think I just was taught always that anger would isolate me. And that meant that anything that made me angry, even if it was justified and legitimate, would isolate. And so I kind of treated it that way. And I thought, what would I have appreciated? What could I have known? What do I want young women, teenage girls, adult women, mothers, daughters, anybody who identifies as a woman and who has experiences like this, they're not alone. So many of us are having these thoughts and having these feelings and thinking hard about the problems in the world that we encounter. So yes, I think it does make people angry, but hopefully in a productive and healthy way, which was the second goal. I just thought too many of us are exhausted, stressed, and tired all the time. And that has to do with our treatment of this emotion. Why do you think men don't want to understand women's anger? Well, think about Me Too. I use Me Too as an example a lot. So Me Too was a massive global expression of women's rage. They were fed up. They're tired. They were angry at the state of things. But Me Too does two things simultaneously. So if you think about Me Too, a lot of men, even the most progressive, even the most caring, expressed a lot of doubt that it could be so bad, expressed a lot of denial that the outcomes were what they were, deflected, not all men, right? There were lots of defensive responses to Me Too. But Me Too, actually, there are two components to Me Too. One is women are saying, I'm experiencing threat and violence all the time on the way to school, in the bus, going to work, in the workplace, in social life. There's violence and threat that I'm navigating all the time, which immediately tells the men in her life, you're not protecting me from much at all. Because as I've said to my brothers and my spouse and my father, you would have to follow me 24-7 to protect me. And even then you probably couldn't. So let's set aside the fact that what I'm experiencing is not an indictment of your desire to help me. That's number one. But the second thing is, women weren't just saying that. They were saying, I'm being harassed at work. I'm being sexually harassed. I might even be assaulted. And not only is that bad, but I professionally am hurt by that. I want to make my own money. I want to support myself and my family. I don't want to have this kind of pressure and oppression and dependence. And that then turns into, what is a man for if he can't provide? She's actually saying she doesn't want me to provide or that all the pressure I put on myself to provide has been misguided. So those are the two pillars of masculinity, providing and protecting. And Me Too critiqued them both simultaneously without those explicit words, but that's what Me Too did. And I think that the benevolent sexism that we are constantly living with, which isn't the hostility of someone 
calling someone a bitch or attacking someone. It's the, you need me to protect you. You need me to provide for you. Here, let me open that door for you. All of that is how so much heterosexual masculinity is constructed. And it's threatening when women are like, I don't need any of that. What are you to me if you're not doing that? That's a big question for a lot of people because from the time men are little boys, they learn that those are things are important. And the subtext of the providing and the protecting is that if you do that in exchange for that, you get to preside, you get to rule, you get to lead, you get to be in charge, you get to be in control. And women are not interested in that. I shouldn't generalize. Most women that we would be talking to right now in this space are not interested in it. What inspired you to explore and write about women's anger? A couple of things. One was that I watched Trump's ascendancy and really thought about the way he could leverage anger. And you could see it on the right a lot. There was a lot of rage, populist rage from like the Tea Party movement was an angry movement, right? And then Trump was an angry white man who was saying, I have the right to be angry. My country's being taken away from me. But that populist anger was global. And Trump and Bernie Sanders, both of them as men, could leverage that anger. They could look angry. They could talk about being angry. They could get red in the face. They could look a little mad and unhinged. But women leaders can't. And Hillary Clinton definitely couldn't, right? So she was running for presidency, but she always had to look calm and smoothed hair and unruffled. And then she was called inauthentic. So I think women are familiar with that in our personal lives, whether it's at home or at work or in political life. It's that double-edged sword. You can't look crazy. You can't look angry. You can't be upset. But at the same time, are they going to call you inauthentic, careless? Like, what the hell? There's no answer. There's no way to be angry. And there's definitely no way to tap into that political movement that allows you to be competitive. And we know that that's true in the workplace because when men express anger, people trust them more and think they're leaders and are more likely to be convinced of their position. And that's because it confirms our gender stereotypes. We associate anger and men and power. But when a woman does the same thing, Again, because she's transgressing, it makes people dislike her, distrust her, and they feel alienated from her. Even if anger is the right response, right? Even if anger is a legitimate response, she's denied that ability to claim leadership in that way or express power in that way or exercise authority in that way. And so I wanted to write about that. And do you think that that's why women feel uncomfortable with? feeling or expressing our anger? I mean, I think we are smart and we learn our lessons well as children. We're rewarded for suppressing our anger, diverting our anger, minimizing our anger, so that by the time we're 20, 30, 40, 50, it never ends. Instead of saying we're angry, we ourselves learn to minimize it. Oh, that was so frustrating. Oh, it's nothing. Oh, I'm just so tired, um, feeling really stressed. But you scratch any of those just a tiny bit. And you will find an angry woman who feels taken advantage of or cheated out of something or treated unfairly or ignored or passed over repeatedly. And you just need one or two sentences from I'm stressed, I'm tired, it's nothing to get to the core problem, which is this sense of threat or injustice. That's what anger is, right? It's a response to a threat that you perceive and it's actually very social emotion because it's the emotion that drives 
the need to communicate your needs to your society and your community. And if we're denied that, how are we supposed to express our needs? Exactly. Or say there's a problem or say, help me, help me change this. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is I learned a little bit about what encouraged you and inspired you to write the book. And doctors told you that you were stressed, but they were wrong. Oh, yeah. I'd love for you to share a little bit more about that experience with your own rage. I was a quintessential firstborn Catholic good girl, right? And anger was simply not an option the way I was raised, not an option. And so I, like many women, lost the ability to recognize my own feelings of anger or to make sense of them. And what happens very often then is if you suppress it or you ignore it long enough, it literally will become material in some other way. It's one of the plays on the title of the book, this idea that rage becomes her, is that it makes its way. Emotions will always sort themselves out. They'll find some way to express themselves, and it can either be healthy or unhealthy. It can be positive or negative. There's no positive emotion or negative emotion. They're all just there, and it's the way we deal with them that ends up having positive or negative outcomes. My outcomes at that point were very negative. I was stressed. I, I had all the words. I was stressed. I was tired. I clenched my jaws. I had crushing headaches. I threw my back out at a ridiculously young age. And when I went to the doctor, and I had three little children, and I was working, and I had a spouse, and I had aging parents, and that's in women's typical lives by the time you're sort of maybe in your mid-30s to mid-40s, people have a lot going on. But the doctors were not particularly helpful. And not one doctor ever asked me about how I felt about the stress. Clearly, I was stressed. But the response was, maybe you should do some yoga. And I was like, when in my spare time, yoga, I don't really have time for yoga. If I can brush my teeth and wash my face on the same day, I'm super happy. No, like, like I'm, you know, the responses were very inadequate. And so I just think that the more I looked into it, and I write about this a lot in the book, there's so many ailments that are categorized as quote unquote women's ailments starting in adolescence, eating disorders, self-harm, anxiety, depression, what used to be called a kind of mental frailty of women, and then other things, cardiac problems, chronic pain. The majority of people in the world with chronic pain are women. And we're now really being able to understand the dualism of our mind-body scientific approach is failing us over and over and over again because suppressed anger is a salient quality of so many of these illnesses and issues suppressed rage comes up over and over and over again. So for example, Black women with breast cancer, studies have shown that they have excessively high levels of suppressed rage. And there's a lot going on. I'm not saying it's causal. There's a lot that goes into this, but the consistency of the emotional aspect of these illnesses as they pertain to women is notable, I think. If you're feeling stuck in your job or like you've lost your career mojo and your work doesn't satisfy you like it once did, Girlboss is here to help. Our brand new course, Spark Your Career Renaissance, is your career playbook for going from stuck to success. Girlboss resident columnist and career coach Tori Lazar is not here to tell you to quit your job or ask for a raise. You're going to go deeper, way deeper to unlock your true source of joy and ambition. Click the link in the show notes to join. You're listening to my chat with Soraya. Next up, we talk about how women can harness their anger to enact positive change. Let's get back into it. 
Speaking of emotions, in your book, you discuss the idea of emotional labor. I'd love for you to explain for our listeners this concept and its connection to women's anger. Sure. I mean, I think that uh, Arlie Hochschild, a sociologist, coined this term. She was talking about, initially talking about the work women tend to do in the workplace, service work, where they have to do emotional labor, meaning they have to really be attuned to people's needs and their feelings, and they have to deny their own feelings, to smile, to be comforting, to be nurturing. This is now exploded into a whole much broader range of things that include what people call mental load, which is the work that women do as carers in society, whether it's for their family members, their spouse, their children, their parents, or extended community of people that they care for at work, the same thing, where they're constantly doing the emotional work of thinking about other people's needs, putting those needs first, making sure that there are birthday cards and birthday presents and making sure there's always food and that people aren't going to eat the food that they're allergic to or making sure that they are keeping up with friends or keeping connections with family members. And it kind of is the grease and the oil and the fuel of relationships that no one ever talks about. The small things that add up into this enormous weight on women's lives. And it's not until you start listing them, right? you start thinking about them, that you realize how much of it women tend to be doing. And it comes out, for example, in the chore gap. Lesbian relationships don't have chore gaps the same way because women will talk about things, negotiate them, and then have very kind of clear understanding. That doesn't happen in heterosexual relationships so much because those relationships come with gender role expectations baked in, and it's very hard to pull away from them because society rewards it. Society will reward those things. But if you think about childcare, men, for example, will say, well, I'm doing 50% of the childcare and they will do things like the more, what I think of as more fun chores, giving the kids a bath, for example, right? That's a fun thing to do, but it has a beginning, a middle and an end. It's very discreet. That's different from calculating every child's daily nutritional intake, making sure they're not going to be poisoned at school by allergens every day going to doctor's appointments, knowing who the doctors are, there's a whole range of more complex nurturing detail that women are engaged in, even if the time allocation is the same. The quality of the labor matters. The quality of the investment of time and thought matters. You bathe the child, you go to sleep, you're like, I did a good job, I bathed the child. But if you're getting into bed and you're thinking, My kid hasn't had enough iron this week. What am I going to do for the next three days to make sure? That's a totally different calculation, you know? And you also can't write it down. If you're going on a business trip, someone else is going to bathe your kid. But if you're going on a business trip and you know what everyone in your family needs for the next 10 days, who can do that? So that's kind of emotional labor and mental load altogether. And what does emotional labor look like at work? Oh, wow. Well, I think that a lot of women... Again, I think a lot of gender norms go into the workplace. And so we know we all have stories. I have experiences. I'm sure you probably have experiences of being expected just to do certain things because you're a woman, right? You should be thinking about other people and making sure they're comfortable. Some people are entitled to comfort. Some people are not so entitled to comfort. And it often comes down to women making sure that offices are pleasant places. And it's not quite the same thing, but a lot of what we see is women are often in proto-maternal roles, their assistants, their nurses, 
teachers where it is part of their role to be emotionally competent and sensitive and to extend themselves. And in fact, I just wrote a book about resilience. If you think about teaching, right, we know that through the pandemic, the teaching crisis that already existed really has come to a head. Yes. And we talk a lot about resilience, 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 but we don't talk about the fact that as people, teachers, the vast majority of whom are still women, are expected to be resilience resources for other people. Screw their own resilience. We don't even focus on that. Like some schools do, but in fact, a woman can decide that she wants to take self-help steps to try and develop more resilience, but she in fact has to do that because she's expected to be the emotional resource for so many other people. So that quality of always putting others first, of thinking about, oh, that person's birthday's coming up, let's do something in the office, or let's celebrate the retirement, or how are we going to communicate so that we don't hurt someone, or all of that nurturing work is the stuff of emotional labor. Yeah, and if I'm being honest, for me, a leader, a small business owner, it is the most stressful part of my job is the guilt that I feel sometimes for not being caring enough, not we're not fulfilling that. Yeah, not being attentive enough. And it's because I don't have the time, right? I also know and understand intimately why hiring someone that's going to be focused on doing that outside of their core work is oppressive in its own nature. Me handing that off to someone else isn't necessarily the solution to it. Why does society need to encourage more women to be angry? So I would probably disagree with that and rephrase it. I think what we need to do is teach everyone, but starting with children, emotional competence. How do you recognize the feeling you're having? Give it a name, make meaning out of it, and then have that meaning, act on that meaning. So if we socialize the ability to recognize anger out of girls or out of people who have strongly what we think of as feminine qualities, what are we doing, right? We're actually taking away very important tool for them, very important information. But that is how we socialize girls in the same way that we socialize boys to suppress their fear or their sadness or their empathy, right? Very often boys very early on learn that those emotions are girl emotions. They're weak. They're signs of weakness in Andrew Tate's world, right? And so we need all children to understand the full range of human emotion. And we know that people who do that are much happier people. They're healthier. They have more fulfilling relationships. They tend to be more creative in their work lives. If you can appreciate all the emotions, then when you are angry, it doesn't hurt you. And do you think that it is becoming easier for women to express their anger or harder? <laughs> I really wonder about that because, well, first of all, every culture is different. Gallup has been doing a study for 10 years that has shown around the world that women's anger is on this trajectory. It's going up, 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 and men's is going down like this. There's a big gap and women just get angrier and angrier and men are getting less and less angry. I had a reporter from the BBC call me and say, this is true in every country in the United States, though. The gap is smaller. Why do you think that is? And I said, well, I haven't seen the study, but I would go and see if there's one on sadness. Look at the gap for sadness. Because in America, women feel a lot of shame about anger. So they're going to be less likely to say, I'm angry, but they're going to be much more likely to say, I'm sad. 
And she goes, oh, I'll do that. And a few weeks later, she wrote back and she goes, oh, my God, the sadness gap is huge. And I said, so what I'm hearing, we don't know for sure, but it seems very likely because we know this from a lot of other studies, is that in the United States, women are feeling sadder and sadder like adolescent girls. But in fact, probably what they're feeling is a lot of anger that they can't articulate. Yeah. And we know that men are in distress. We know that they're anxious. We know that they're isolated. They're angry. They're clearly in chaos. Men are having a shitty time. Yeah. They're not having a great era right now. (laughs) They're not. But the trouble with that is a lot of women, especially mothers of boys, spouses who love their husbands or their boyfriends, they then double down on care and then they suppress their own needs. And then you end up with these massive gaps sentiment gaps. Before the pandemic, I was already looking at millennials and their marriage and gender role issues, which were huge already because millennials started having children. And all I really see is a lot of divorce headed our way, like a real divorce peak coming because it's not really sustainable. Absolutely. And in your book, you made mention of a statistic that a lot of people have probably seen around the number of divorces that are being initiated by women, which is like disproportionate. Oh, the vast majority, vast majority of divorces, over 70%, I think, or just around 70, like 68 to 72%, for sure. And women make no bones about it. They're like, I don't have equality in my marriage. And men remarry someone younger, more compliant, and women don't want to get married again because the institution itself can't be separated for them in a heterosexual framework from the inequality. And that's a very big problem. And this is why I asked earlier, isn't anger inevitable? When we think about all the systems that encourage and influence the anger that women experience, it's an inevitable end. So even if that man goes out, finds a younger, more compliant woman, eventually, is she not going to be angry too? I mean, if you ask me, I would say yes, but... (laughs) You're the expert, so you're the only person I'm going to ask about this, to be honest. I'm happy with that answer. (laughs) This is very interesting though, right? Because in fact, I think that... We have stereotypes about anger at every stage of our lives. First, you're a little princess, and then you're a hormonal teen. And I write about this too. And then you're kind of a high-maintenance bitch, and then you're an old nag. But sometimes it really takes women decades to get so fed up, right? To get so exhausted that all they have left is the realization that they're mad. But by then, they're like 45, right? Now, the pandemic Our general social acceleration in the culture, I think, has reduced that time period. And I think because of we we are subject to so much more information and there are all of these crises that are simultaneous, that what used to take four decades is taking two, maybe. So I just think that what used to be a middle age crisis is now like a quarter life crisis, right? It's just more, faster of everything, including those life stages. I'm 35 and I'm seeing it across the board with all my friends right now. I'm experiencing it myself. I'm in the process of selling my home. I have no clue what I'm going to do or where I'm going. I've spent most of the last two years feeling like a complete failure in so many aspects of my life. I think that I'm just angry and fed up. Yeah. And I also think you're describing, I've thought a lot about this and the American society is, at least in my mind, pretty deeply conservative right? It's institutions, it's structures, it's religiosity. And even if you're not a religious person, even if you're not a conservative person, you are still living in an environment that has a penchant for rules and stages and linearity, right? And so 
when we think about life stages, it's like a path. And the path is, here it is, right? You go to school, and then you get a job, and then you have children, then you save money, and if you're lucky, you buy a house, and somewhere along the line, you have a car. It's like the 1950s version of American prosperity that is out of date. And so we have these life stages and also these generations, these 25 to 27-year generations, and they are not relevant in our lives right now. They are not in tune with the pace of our lives, with the quality of our political relationships, and yet they loom over us, right? I have three children who are in their 20s, and all of my friends have kids that are either teenagers or at that stage. And everyone's disoriented because those younger generations aren't following paths that are predictable or laid out for them. And in fact, maybe that's better. Maybe they will know themselves more, struggle at this stage but come out the other end, we don't know. Because in fact, other generations just did the things, especially post-World War II. But I think some of what you're describing is feeling, oh, I haven't met that life stage benchmark or those benchmarks. And that's really hard, even if you don't agree with them, because they're there. Yeah. So what advice would you give to women who want to embrace their anger as a source of empowerment? Honestly, I would say a little bit of what I said before, which is, Name it. Understand its meaning. I'm not a big person for the word empowerment because actually what we need is power. Empowerment can take all kinds of squirrely paths down self-help routes or different ways of thinking, oh, I feel empowered. But in fact, power is power. And we need better distributions of power in society so that people can be healthier, so that they can be freer. You could be very empowered and still unhealthy and not free. It's interesting, right? Because people really think men have a higher drive for power than women, which is more bullshit. A lot of women have a very strong desire for power. It's explicit. But power like anger is incompatible with our stereotypes about gender. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope everyone will be inspired to read Rage Becomes Her, my equivalent of the Bible. What do you hope readers and and listeners will take away from your book on the topic of women's rage? I hope it resonates and I hope it does validate their experiences because we aren't crazy. We do understand things and our anger, generally speaking, is pretty rational. If you get angry, it's not because you're like pulling ideas out of a hat or drawing them from the clouds. It's because something has happened and you have this response. So I hope that and I also hope it provides people with a framework and a language to communicate to others. And if they can't do it themselves, hand it to a man. Just say, here, give this a look, read this chapter. This is my experience. Did you understand this? You know, one of my favorite reviews was in the Washington Post from Carlos Zazado. He read the book and he said he was doubting some things. And he said to his wife, you know, she's saying blah, blah, blah. And she just looked at him and said, how can you not know that? And he said, you mean this is your experience? And she's like, duh, yeah. What do you mean you don't know that? Because in fact, How can it be that so much of our lives is not understood and not visible to the people around us? And so I hope that it's useful in that way. Yeah, the tale of invisible women and all of our experiences. Thank you so much for your time and your energy and all of your knowledge today. This is a career highlight for me personally, and I'm really hoping that everyone's enjoyed this conversation. It was a great, great conversation. 
Yeah, I really appreciate your invitation. Thank you all. Thank you. And that's a wrap on my conversation with Soraya. Tune in next week where I'll be chatting with Dr. Jen Gunter, the no BS OBGYN and the New York Times bestselling author, where she debunks period cycling and shares her thoughts about Kourtney Kardashian's vagina gummies. It's a spicy one. As always, this podcast is produced by Liz Goober and Victoria Christie and edited by Diego Domine. Until next time, keep blooming.